Welcome to the Huberman Lab Podcast, where we discuss science and science-based tools for everyday life. I'm Andrew Huberman, and I'm a professor of neurobiology and ophthalmology at Stanford School of Medicine. Today, I have the pleasure of introducing the first guest of the Huberman Lab Podcast. My guest is Dr. Carl Dyseroth. Dr. Carl Dyseroth is a medical doctor, he's a psychiatrist, and a research scientist at Stanford School of Medicine. In his clinical practice, he sees patients dealing with a range of nervous system disorders, including obsessive compulsive disorder, autism, attention deficit disorders, schizophrenia, mania, anxiety disorders, and eating disorders. His laboratory develops and explores tools with which to understand how the nervous system works in the healthy situation, as well as in disorders of the mind. Dr. Dyseroth's laboratory has pioneered the development and use of what are called channel opsins, proteins that come from algae, which can now be introduced to the nervous systems of animals and humans in order to precisely control the activity of neurons in the brain and body with the use of light. This is a absolutely transformative technology because whereas certain drug treatments can often relieve certain symptoms of disorders, they often carry various side effects. And in some individuals, often many individuals, these drug treatments simply do not work. The channel opsins and their related technologies stand to transform the way that we treat psychiatric illness and various disorders of movement and perception. In fact, just recently, the channel opsins were applied in a human patient to allow an adult, fully blind human being to see light for the very first time. We also discuss Dr. Dyseroth's newly released book, which is entitled Projections, A Story of Human Emotions. This is an absolutely remarkable book that uses stories about his interactions with his patients to teach you how the brain works in the healthy and diseased state and also reveals the motivation for and discovery of these channel opsins and other technologies by Carl's laboratory that are being used now to treat various disorders of the nervous system and that in the future are certain to transform the fields of psychiatry, mental health, and health in general. I found our conversation to be an absolutely fascinating one about how the brain functions in the healthy state and why and how it breaks down in disorders of the mind. We also discuss the current status and future of psychedelic treatments for psychiatric illness, as well as for understanding how the brain works more generally. We also discuss issues of consciousness, and we even delve into how somebody like Carl, who's managing a full-time clinical practice and a 40-plus person laboratory and a family of five children and is happily married, how he organizes his internal landscape, his own thinking, in order to manage that immense workload and to progress forward for the sake of medicine and his pursuits in science. I found this to be an incredible conversation. I learned so much. I also learned through the course of reading Carl's book, Projections, that not only is he an accomplished psychiatrist and obviously an accomplished research scientist and a family man, but he's also a phenomenal writer. Projections is absolutely masterfully written. It's just beautiful and it's accessible to anybody, even if you don't have a science background. So I hope that you'll enjoy my conversation with Carl Dyseroth as much as I did. And thank you for tuning in. Before we begin, I want to point out that this podcast is separate from my teaching and research roles at Stanford. In my desire and effort to bring zero cost to consumer information about science and science-related tools to the general public, I'd like to acknowledge the sponsors of today's podcast. Our first sponsor is Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens is an all-in-one vitamin mineral probiotic drink. I've been taking Athletic Greens since 2012, so I'm delighted that they're sponsoring the podcast. 
the reason I started taking Athletic Greens and the reason I still take Athletic Greens once or twice a day is that it helps me cover all of my basic nutritional needs. It makes up for any deficiencies that I might have. In addition, it has probiotics, which are vital for microbiome health. I've done a couple of episodes now on the so-called gut microbiome and the ways in which the microbiome interacts with your immune system, with your brain to regulate mood, and essentially with every biological system relevant to health throughout your brain and body. With Athletic Greens, I get the vitamins I need, the minerals I need, and the probiotics to support my microbiome. If you'd like to try Athletic Greens, you can go to athleticgreens.com slash Huberman and claim a special offer. They'll give you five free travel packs plus a year's supply of vitamin D3K2. There are a ton of data now showing that vitamin D3 is essential for various aspects of our brain and body health. Even if we're getting a lot of sunshine, many of us are still deficient in vitamin D3. And K2 is also important because it regulates things like cardiovascular function, calcium in the body, and so on. Again, go to athleticgreens.com slash Huberman to claim the special offer of the five free travel packs and the year supply of vitamin D3 K2. Today's episode is also brought to us by Element. Element is an electrolyte drink that has everything you need and nothing you don't. That means the exact ratios of electrolytes are an element, and those are sodium, magnesium, and potassium, but it has no sugar. I've talked many times before on this podcast about the key role of hydration and electrolytes for nerve cell function, neuron function, as well as the function of all the cells and all the tissues and organ systems of the body. If we have sodium, magnesium, and potassium present in the proper ratios, all of those cells function properly and all our bodily systems can be optimized. If the electrolytes are not present and if hydration is low, we simply can't think as well as we would otherwise. Our mood is off, hormone systems go off, our ability to get into physical action, to engage in endurance and strength and all sorts of other things is diminished. So with Element, you can make sure that you're staying on top of your hydration and that you're getting the proper ratios of electrolytes. If you'd like to try Element, you can go to drinkelement, that's lmnt.com slash Huberman, and you'll get a free Element sample pack with your purchase. They're all delicious. So again, if you want to try Element, you can go to elementlmnt.com slash Huberman. Today's episode is also brought to us by Waking Up. Waking Up is a meditation app that includes hundreds of meditation programs, mindfulness trainings, yoga nidra sessions, and NSDR, non-sleep deep rest protocols. I started using the Waking Up app a few years ago because even though I've been doing regular meditation since my teens, and I started doing yoga nidra about a decade ago, my dad mentioned to me that he had found an app, turned out to be the Waking Up app, which could teach you meditations of different durations and that had a lot of different types of meditations to place the brain and body into different states and that he liked it very much. So I gave the Waking Up app a try and I too found it to be extremely useful because sometimes I only have a few minutes to meditate, other times I have longer to meditate. And indeed, I love the fact that I can explore different types of meditation to bring about different levels of understanding about consciousness, but also to place my brain and body into lots of different kinds of states, depending on which meditation I do. I also love that the Waking Up app has lots of different types of yoga nidra sessions. For those of you who don't know, yoga nidra is a process of lying very still, but keeping an active mind. It's very different than most meditations. And there's excellent scientific data to show that yoga nidra and something similar to it called non-sleep deep rest or NSDR, can greatly restore levels of cognitive and physical energy, even with just a short 10-minute session. If you'd like to try the Waking Up app, you can go to wakingup.com slash Huberman and access a free 30-day trial. Again, that's wakingup.com slash Huberman to access a free 30-day trial. And now, my conversation with Dr. Carl Dyseroff. Well, thanks for being here. 
Thanks for having me. It's been a long time coming for me uh, because uh, you may not know this, but one of the reasons I started this podcast was actually so I could have this conversation. <laughs> it's it's but one. There are other sure. reasons, but one of the goals is to be able to hold conversations with colleagues of mine that are doing incredible work in the realm of science. And then here we also have this really special opportunity because you're also a clinician. You yes. see patients and yep. have for a long time. Yep. So for people that might not be so familiar with the fields of neuroscience, et cetera, what is the difference between neurology and psychiatry? Well, it, it, you know, I'm, I'm married to a neurologist and I am a psychiatrist and we make fun of each other all the time. So uh, this is uh, a lot of neuroscientists and a lot of brain clinicians actually think these two should be the same field at, at some point in the future. They were in the past. They started together. Psychiatry, though, uh, focuses on disorders where we can't see something that's physically wrong, where we don't have a measurable, where there's no blood test that makes the diagnosis. There's no brain scan that tells us this is schizophrenia, this is depression for an individual patient. And so psychiatry is is much more mysterious. And the only tools we have are words. Neurologists are uh, fantastic physicians. They see the stroke on brain scans. They see the seizure and the pre-seizure activity with an EEG. Uh, and they can measure and treat based on those measurables. In psychiatry, we have a harder job, I think. We use words. We have rating scales for symptoms. We can measure depression and autism with rating scales. But those are words still. And ultimately, that's what psychiatry is built around. It's, it's an odd situation because we've got the most complex, beautiful, mysterious, incredibly engineered uh, object in the universe. And yet all we have are words to, to find our way in. So do you find that if a patient is very verbal or hyperverbal, that you have an easier time diagnosing them as opposed to somebody who's um, more quiet and reserved? Or it's, I could imagine the opposite might be true as well. Well, it, because we only have words, you've put your finger on a key point. If they don't speak that much in principle, it's harder. The lack of speech can be a symptom. We can see that in depression. We can see that in the negative symptoms of schizophrenia. We can see that in autism. Sometimes by itself, that is a symptom, uh, reduced speech. But ultimately, you do need something. You need uh, some some words to help guide you. And that, in fact, and there's, there's, there's challenges that I, I can tell you about where patients with depression who are so depressed they can't speak, that makes it a bit of a challenge to distinguish depression from some of the other reasons they might not be speaking. And this is a, a sort of the art and the science of psychiatry. Um, do you find that there are uh, patients that have, well, let's call them comorbidities or conditions where they would land in both psychiatry and neurology, meaning uh, there's damage to a particular area of the brain and therefore they're depressed and how do you tease that out as a psychiatrist? Yeah, this happens all the time. Uh, Parkinson's disease is a great example. Um, it's a, it's a, it can be debilitating in so many ways. Uh, people have trouble moving, they have trouble walking, trouble swallowing, and they can have uh, truly severe depression. Um, and this is, you might say, oh, well, they've got a life-threatening uh, illness. But there are plenty of neurological disorders where depression is not a strong, a strongly comorbid uh, symptom. 
uh, like ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, for example. And depression is not a, a strong, uh, strongly comorbid in that disease. But in Parkinson's, it is extremely common. And uh, as you know, in, in Parkinson's disease, we have loss of the dopamine neurons in the, in the, in the midbrain. And this is a very uh, uh, you know, specific population of cells that's dying. And probably that leads to both the movement disorder and the depression. There are many examples of that where these two fields come together and you really need to work as a team. I've had patients in my clinic that I, I treat the depression associated with their Parkinson's and a neurologist treats the movement associated with the Parkinson's and we work together. Do you think we will ever have a blood test for depression or schizophrenia or autism? And would that be a good or a bad thing? I think uh, ultimately there will be quantitative tests. Uh, already efforts are being made to look at certain rhythms in the brain using external EEGs uh, to look at brain waves effectively, look at the ratios of certain frequencies to other frequencies. And there's some progress being made on that front. Uh, it's not as good as it, it could be. It doesn't really give you the confidence for the individual patient that you would, you would like. But ultimately what's going on in the brain in psychiatric disease is physical. Uh, and it's due to the circuits and the connections and the projections in the brain that are uh, not working as they would in a, a typical situation. And I, I do think we'll have those measurables at some point. Now, is that good or bad? Uh, you know, I, I think that will be good. One of the challenges we have with uh, psychiatry is it is an art as well as a science to elicit these uh, symptoms uh, in a precise way. It does take some time. And it would be great if we could just do a quick measurement. Um, could it be abused or, or, or misused? Uh, certainly, but that's, I think, true for all of medicine. Mm -hmm. I want to know, and I'm sure there are several, but what do you see as the biggest challenge facing psychiatry and the treatment of mental illness today? I think we have, uh, we're making progress on what the biggest challenge is, which I think there's still such a strong stigma for psychiatric disease that uh, patients often don't come to us um, and uh, they feel that they should be able to handle this on their own. And that, that can slow treatment. It can lead to you know, worsening symptoms. We know, for example, patients who have uh, untreated anxiety issues, if you go for a year or more with a, a serious untreated anxiety issue, that can convert to depression. You can add another uh, problem on top of the anxiety. And so it would be, you know, why do people not come for treatment? They, they, they feel like this is something they should be able to master on their own, uh, which, which can be true, but, uh, usually, uh, uh some help is, is, is a good thing. That raises a, a question related to something I heard you say many years ago at a lecture, which was that, um, this was a scientific lecture and you said, you know, we don't know how other people feel most of the time we don't even really know how we feel yeah. maybe you could elaborate on that a little bit and the the um dearth of of ways that we we have to talk about feelings i mean there's so many words i don't know how many but i'm guessing there are more than a dozen words to describe the state that i call sadness but as far as i understand we don't have any way of comparing that in a, in a real objective sense so how as a psychiatrist when your job is to use words to diagnose words of the patient to diagnose, do you maneuver around that? And, and what is this landscape that we call feelings or emotions? This is uh, really interesting. Uh, people 
here we have a there's a tension between the words that we've built up in the clinic that mean something to the to the physicians and then there's the colloquial use of words that may not be the same and so that's the first level we have to sort out when someone says you know i'm i'm depressed uh, what exactly do they mean by that uh, that may be different from from what we're talking about in terms of depression so part of psychiatry is to get beyond that word and to get into how they're actually feeling get get rid of the the jargon and get to real world examples of of how they're feeling so you know how do you what how much do you look forward into the future how much uh hope do you have how much planning are you doing for the future so these here now you're getting into actual things you can talk about that are unambiguous if someone says yeah i, I can't even i can't even think about tomorrow i I'm not, <laughs> I don't see how I'm going to get to tomorrow. That, that's a nice, precise thing that, you know, it's, it's sad, it's tragic, but, but it's also, that means something, and we know what that means. That's the hopelessness symptom of depression. And, and that is what I try to do when I do a psychiatric interview. I try to get past the jargon and get to what's actually happening in the patient's life and, and in their mind. But as you say, ultimately, you know, and this shows up across, I, 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 address this issue every day in my life, whether it's in the lab where we're, we're looking at animals, whether fish or mice or rats and studying their behavior, or when I'm in you know, a conversation with just a, a friend or a colleague, or when I'm talking to a patient, I never really know what's going on inside the mind of the other person. I get, I get some feedback, I get words, I get behaviors, I get actions, but I never really know. And as you said at the very beginning of the question, you know, often we don't even have the words and the insight to even understand what's going on in our own mind. I think a lot of psychiatrists are pretty introspective. Uh, that's part of the reason they end up in that specialty. And so uh, maybe we spend a little more time than the average person thinking about what's going on within, but it doesn't mean we have answers. Mm -hmm. So in um, this uh, area of trying to figure out what's going on under the hood through words, Sounds like certain words uh, would relate to this uh, this idea of anticipation and hope. Mm -hmm. um, is it fair to say that that somehow relates to the dopamine system in the sense that dopamine is involved in motivated behaviors? I mean, is that in if I say, for instance, and I, I won't ask you to run a session with me here for uh, <laughs> for free. Um, we'll do that off camera. <laughs> okay, right. Um, if I were to say, you know, I I just can't imagine the tomorrow i just it's i i just can't do it so that's that's not action based that's purely based on my my internal narrative um but i could imagine things like you know i i have a terrible time sleeping i'm not hungry i'm not eating so statements about physical actions i'm guessing also have um validity absolutely and there are now ways to measure the accuracy of those statements like for instance if i gave you permission you could know if i slept last night or whether or not I was just saying I had a poor night's sleep. Yes, um, that's right. So in moving forward through 2021 and into the next 10 and 100 years of psychiatry, do you think that the body reporting some of the actions of a human um, are going to become useful and, and me mesh with the words in a way that's going to make your job easier? 
I do think that's true. And these, the two things you've mentioned, eating and sleeping, those are additional uh, uh, criteria that we use to diagnose depression. These are the vegetative signs, we call them, of depression, poor sleep and poor eating. And if you have a baseline for somebody, that's the real challenge, though. What's different in that person? Some people with depressed, they sleep more. Some people with, who are depressed, they sleep less. Some people who are depressed, they're more physically agitated and they move around more. Some people who are depressed, they, they move less even while they're awake. And so you need, here's the challenge, is you, you can't just look at how they are now. You have to get a, a baseline um, and then see how it's changed. And that can be a challenge that raises you know, ethical issues. Um, you know, how, do you, how do you collect that baseline information from someone healthy? I don't, I don't think that's something we have solved. Of course, you know, with phones and accelerometers and phones, uh, you could, in principle, collect a lot of baseline information from people. But that would have to be uh, treated very uh, carefully uh, for privacy reasons. And in terms of measuring one's own behavior, you know, I, I've heard of work that's going on. Um, Sam Golden up at the University of Washington, um, who works on aggression in animal models, was telling me that there's some efforts that he's making. And perhaps you're involved in this work as well. I don't know of um, devices that would allow people to detect, for instance, when they're veering towards a depressive episode for themselves, that they may choose or not choose to report that to their clinician. Maybe they don't even have a clinician. Maybe this person that you referred to at the beginning, uh, this person who doesn't feel comfortable coming to talk to you, they um, maybe something is measuring changes in the inflection of their voice mm -hmm. or the, mm -hmm. the speed at which they get up from a chair. Do you think that those kind of metrics will eventually inform somebody, hey, you know, you're in trouble? This is getting to this question of, uh, the, back to the statement that I heard you make and rung in my mind now, I think for more than a decade, which is oftentimes we don't even know how we feel. Yeah, you know, that that I do like because that gives the patient the agency to, to detect what's going on. And even separate from modern technology, this has been part of the, the art of psychiatry is to help patients realize that sometimes other people observing them can give them the earliest warning signs of depression. We see this very often in, in, in family. They'll, they'll notice when the patient is changing before the patient does. And then there are things the patient may notice but not correctly ascribe to the onset of depression. And a classic example of that is what we call early morning awakening. And this is something that can happen very early as people start to slide into depression. They start to wake up earlier and earlier, you know, just inexplicably they're awake. At, so this is like 2 a.m., 3 a.m. type yeah, waking? It, it could start, yeah, it could start at 5 a.m., could go to 4. And to unable three. to fall back asleep. Unable to fall back asleep, yeah. exactly. Uh, so that's, and that, they may not know what to do with that. It could just be, <laughs> from their perspective, it's just something that's happening. But if you put enough of that information together, that that could be a useful warning sign for the patient and it could help them seek treatment. And I think that is a, something that could be really valuable. Interesting. So in this framework of, you know, needing words to self-report or machines to detect how we feel or, and maybe inform a, a psychiatrist, uh, how a patient feels. I want to um, touch on some of the technologies that you've been involved in building, but as a way to march into that, are there any very good treatments for psychiatric disease? Meaning, are there currently any pills, potions, forms of communication that reliably work every time or yes. work in most patients? And could you give a couple examples of great successes of psychiatry if they exist? Yes. Yeah, we are fortunate. And this coming back to my, uh, you know, the, the joking uh, between my wife and myself in terms of neurology and psychiatry, we actually, in psychiatry, 
despite the depths of our the mystery we struggle with we, many of our treatments are actually you know we're, we're we may be doing better than some other specialties in terms of actually causing you know the therapeutic benefit for patients we do help patients you know the patients who suffer from uh, by the way both medications and talk therapy have been shown to be extremely effective in many cases uh, for example people with panic disorder Cognitive behavioral therapy, just working with words, helping people identify the early signs of when they're starting to move toward a panic attack, what are the cognitions that are happening. You can train people to derail that, and, and you can very potently treat panic disorder that way. How long does something like that take, for on average? For a motivated, insightful patient, you can have a, a, a very uh, you know cookbooky series of sessions, you know, uh, six to twelve sessions, or, or even less for someone who's very uh, insightful and motivated, and it can have a very powerful effect that quickly. Um, and that's just with words. There are many psychiatric medications that are very effective for uh, the conditions that they're treating. Uh, antipsychotic medications, they have side effects, but uh, boy, do they work. They really can clear up, particularly the positive symptoms of, of schizophrenia, for example, the auditory hallucinations, the paranoia. People's lives can be turned around by these. Um, we should clarify positive symptoms. You mean not <laughs> positive in the in the qualitative sense. You mean positive yes. meaning that the appearance of, of something abnormal. Exactly. Yeah. And thank you for that clarification. When we say positive symptoms, we do mean the addition of something that wasn't there before, like a hallucination or a paranoia. And that stands in contrast to the negative symptoms where something is taken away. And these are patients who are who are withdrawn, they, they have uh, what we call thought blocking, they can't even progress forward in a sequence of, of thoughts. Uh, both of those can be part of schizophrenia. The, the hallucinations and the paranoia are more effectively treated right now, but they are effectively treated. And then, you know, this is a, a frustrating and yet heartening aspect of psychiatry. There are treatments like electroconvulsive therapy, which is uh, where, you know, it's extremely effective for depression. We have patients who nothing else works for them, where they can't tolerate medications, and uh, you can administer under a very safe controlled uh, condition where the patient's body is not moving. They're put into a very safe uh, situation where the body doesn't move or seize. It's just an internal uh, a process that's triggered in the brain. This is an extraordinarily effective treatment for treatment-resistant depression. At the same time, I find it as, as, as heartening as it is to see patients respond to this with, with uh, uh, who have severe depression. I'm also frustrated by it. Why, why can't we do something more precise than, than this for these very severe cases? And people have sought for decades to understand how is it that a seizure is leading to the relief of, of depression? And we don't know the answer yet. We would love to do that. People are working hard on that. But that is a treatment that does work too. Uh, all, in all of these cases, though, in psychiatry, the, the, the frustrating thing is that we don't have the level of understanding that a cardiologist has in thinking about the heart. You know, the heart is, we now know, it's a pump. It's pumping blood. And so you can look at everything about how it's working or not working in terms of that frame it's clearly a pump we don't really have that level of what what is the circuit really there for in psychiatry um and that's that's what is missing that's what we need to find so we can design truly effective and specific mm -hmm. treatments so what do you what are the pieces that are going to be required to cure autism cure parkinson's cure schizophrenia i, I would imagine there are several elements and bins here. Um, understanding that the 
natural biology, understanding what the activity patterns are, how to modify those. Maybe um, you could just tell us what you think. What is the the bento box of the perfect cure? Yeah, I think the first thing we need is understanding. We need we need uh, almost every psychiatric treatment has been serendipitously identified. Just noting by chance that something that was done for some person also had a side effect of like lithium or something like lithium is a, is a good example is it true that it was the the urine of guinea pigs given <laughs> lithium that was given to manic patients that made them not manic is that true uh, i don't have firsthand knowledge of that but yeah. uh, i would i would defer that but it's, it's true for essentially every treatment you know the the antidepressants originally uh you know uh, arose as anti-tuberculosis drugs for example i did and, not know that yeah and so this is a it's a classic example for uh uh, and this, this is across all of, of psychiatry. Um, and of course, this, the seizures as well. That was noticed that patients who had epilepsy they, or, or had a seizure there and also had depression that they became much, uh, at least for a while, they were improved after the seizure. That's amazing. I don't want to take you off course of the question that uh, answering the question I asked, but um, I've heard before that if autistic children get a fever, that their symptoms improve. Is that true? I've uh, I've done a fair bit of, of work with autism. Uh, I'm in my clinical practice. I work with adult autism, and I have heard uh, statements like that and, and descriptions like that from from patients and their their families. Um, it's uh it's that is very hard to study quantitatively because often with the children you have this um, uh, um, not as quantitative as you'd like collection of symptom information uh, from from uh, from home, but. I have heard that enough that I think there there may well be something to that. And, you know, what is, anytime you have a fever, what's going on? Well, we know all the cells in the brain, and I know this as an electrophysiologist, if you just change the temperature by a few degrees, everything changes about how neurons work. And that's even just a single neuron. It's even more likely to be complex and different with a circuit of neurons that are all affecting each other. Just elevate the temperature a little bit, everything's different. And so it's, it's, plausible for sure that things like that could happen and do happen now uh but and yet when you think about autism to take your example yes we see changes but what is the element in the brain that's analogous to the pumping heart when we think about the symptoms of depression that's maybe you know we think about motivation and dopamine neurons when we think about autism it's a little more challenging um you have there's a deficit in uh, social interaction and in communication. And so where is that? Where is this, <laughs> where is that situated? What is the key principle uh, governing the social interaction? Um, this is where we need the basic science to bring us a step forward. So we can say, okay, this is the process that's going on. This is what's needed for the incredibly complex task of social interaction, where you've got incredibly rich data streams of sound and meaning, eye contact, body movement. Uh, and that's just for one person. What if there's a group of people? This is overwhelming for people with, with autism. What's the, what's the unifying theme there? It's a lot of information. And, and that maybe is unmatched in any realm of biology, the amount of information coming in through a social interaction, particularly with words and, and language. And so then that turns our attention as neuroscientists. We think, okay, let's think about the parts of the brain that are involved in dealing with merging complex data streams that are very high in bit rate that need to be fused together into a unitary concept. 
And that starts to guide us and maybe we can, and we know other animals are social in their own way and we can study those animals. And so that there's, that's how I think about it. There's hope for the future, thinking about the symptoms as an engineer might and trying to identify the circuits that are likely working uh, to make this typical behavior happen. And that will help us understand how it becomes atypical. So that seems like the first, to me, the first bin of this what I call the bento box uh, for lack of a, of a better analogy that we need to know the circuits. We need to know the cells yeah. in the various brain regions and, and portions of the body and, um, and how they connect to one another and what the patterns of activity are under a normal quote unquote healthy interaction. Yeah. If we understand that, then it seems that the next step, which of course could be carried out in parallel, right? That, that work can be done alongside work where various elements within those circuits are tweaked just right. Like the tuning of a piano in the subtle way, or maybe even like the replacement of a whole set of keys. If the piano is lacking keys, so to speak, you've been very involved in trying to generate those tools. So um, tell us about channel options, why you created them and where they're at now in the laboratory and perhaps also in the clinic? Well, this is a, first of all, I give nature uh, the credit for, for creating channel rhodopsins. These are beautiful uh, little proteins that are made by algae, single-celled green algae. And it's a great story in basic science that our understanding of animal behavior, sensation, cognition, and action in our brains, all the way back to a botanist in the 1850s and 1860s in Russia is where the story begins. So this was a, a botanist named Andrei Faminsen who uh, worked at St. Petersburg. And he uh, had noticed in the river uh, near his laboratory that there were algae that he could look at in a dish, in a saucer. He could put them there and we had light shining from the side. The green uh, tinge in the saucer of water Uh, would uh, move to a particular distance from the light that he was shining from the side, which was an amazing thing. If he made the light brighter, uh, the green tinge would back off a little bit to a more optimal location, so just the right light level. So this was plant behavior. It was light-driven plant behavior, and he delved into this a little bit. He identified that with microscopy, he could see that there were little single-celled algae with flagella that were swimming uh, to, the, to the right light level. So behaving plants, and this has been the secret that's, that's helped us unlock uh, so many principles of animal behavior. So uh, turns out, uh, you know, these algae achieve this amazing uh, result with a single gene that encodes a single protein. What's a protein? It's just a little biomolecule that does a job in a cell. And these are proteins that sit in the surface of cells in their surface membrane. And when a photon, a light particle hits them, uh, they open a little pore, a little hole in the membrane and charged particles, ions like sodium, uh, rush across the pore. Now, why do they do that? They do that to guide their flagella. That signal coming in, those ions coming in through the pore in response to light, guide their flagellar motor that guides them to a particular spot uh, in the saucer, okay? Now, that's plant behavior, but it turns out 
As you know, uh, this movement of ions across the membrane, this happens to also be neural code in our brains for on or off. Hot sodium ions rushing into cells turns them on, makes them fire away, fire action potentials, communicate to the next cell down the, the, the chain. And this is an amazing opportunity because we can borrow these proteins. In fact, we can take the gene that directs the creation of the protein and we can use genetic tricks, modern genetic tricks to put that gene into neurons in the brains of, of mammals uh, uh, and then use light to turn those cells, the specific cells that we put this gene into, turn them on. There are other uh, opsins, we call them, that you can use to turn cells off. It's all fast, real time. You can play in patterns of activity in real time into cells or kinds of cells just as a conductor elicits the music from the orchestra, the strings and the woodwinds, and, and, and you can see what matters, what matters for sensation, what matters for cognition, what matters for action, and we call this optogenetics. Beautiful, and I must say it was quite a, an honor and a privilege to watch optogenetics move from idea to discovery to the laboratory. I think we were postdocs at the same time, oh, which is living proof that uh, people move at different rates. Because <laughs> that's a it's a joke at my expense, by the way. Um, but it's we really, end up in the same spot. <laughs> more or less, uh, physically, if not um, professionally. But n nonetheless, um, it's been a marvelous story thus far. And I'd like to um, maybe you could give us. I'd like to just touch on a couple examples of where the technology resides in laboratories now. So maybe the range of animals that it's being used in and some of the phenomenon that uh, channel op, channel opsins and, um, and their related uh, genes and proteins are uh, starting to elicit what you've seen. Mm -hmm. um, and then I'd like to talk about their applicability to the clinic, which is, I think the, the bigger mission, if you will. Yeah. So this is, uh, you know, this, this uh, whole thing, uh, you know, it's been about, now going on uh, 17 years that we've been putting channel rhodopsins into neurons. It started just like Andre Fominson's work in a, in a dish uh, by 2000, that was in 2004. In 2007, we were putting these into behaving mice and we were able to, to with the flick of a, a switch, cause them to move one direction or another. By 2009... So basically, you're controlling the mouse's behavior. Yeah, exactly, in real time. So we could make a mouse that was just sitting there doing nothing to then turn left very consistently. In fact, go around in a circle and as soon as we turn off the light, it would stop. That was an eye-opening moment. Uh, it took really a few years to make optogenetics work. Uh, there was a lot of putting all the, there are a lot of problems that had to be solved. These these channel rhodopsins actually don't move many ions. They're, they have a, a small current, small conductance as we say. And so we had to figure out ways to pack a lot of them into cells without damaging cells and still make them targetable. So we don't want them to just be in all the cells because then it becomes just like an electrode. You're just stimulating all the cells that are nearby. We had to keep that specificity, make them targetable to just one kind of cell or another while still packing in large numbers of them into those cells. And we had to get in the light and safe in specific ways. And so it, it took probably about four or five years to really create optogenetics between 2004 and 2009. By the end of that time, though, we had uh, all the basic light delivery, gene delivery uh, principles worked out, and people started to apply the 
technology to uh, to fish, to rats, to mice, uh, to uh, non-human primates uh, like monkeys. And just uh, a couple uh, months ago, uh, my colleague uh, Botan Roska in Switzerland uh, succeeded in putting uh, channel adoptions into the eyes of human beings and making a blind person see. And so that's pretty uh, cool. Uh, this was a patient uh, patient with retinal degeneration, and he was provided a channel rhodopsin into the eye of, of this patient and was able to confer some light sensitivity onto this patient that wasn't there before. An amazing paper and discovery. I realize it was one patient, but it's such an important milestone. And, well, you know. it's a, it, as you say, it's a very important milestone, and, and the, the history of that is, is very deep. Uh, almost 10 years earlier, uh, Botand, Roska, and I had published a paper in Science in Human retina but explanted taken from cadavers from someone who had died the living retina taken out uh um, opsins put into this uh, uh retinal tissue and showing that it that it worked recording from the cells showing that in these human neurons retinal neurons that you could get light responses but then from that moment you know almost 10 years of you know how clinical development goes and this is a, a gene therapy so you've got a all, all the regulations and concerns and all that it took almost 10 years to get to to this point now where a living uh, human being uh, has a new functionality that, that wasn't there before now that's incredibly inspiring you know uh and uh it's a it's a it's a beautiful thing i would say though that the the broader significance of optogenetics is really still understanding because once you understand how the circuitry works and which cells actually matter, then any kind of treatment becomes more grounded and logical and specific and principled. And whether it's a medication or talk therapy or brain stimulation treatment with electrical or magnetic means, if you actually know what matters, that is incredibly powerful. And I think no, no, uh, you know, not intended to disparage this the beautiful you know retinal work and and conferring you know vision on on someone who, who couldn't see of course that's wonderful but and that's direct what you might call direct optogenetics in patients indirect is everything that comes from understanding you know okay we know these cells matter now for this symptom well how can we target those those cells and help them work better in patients by any means and i think that's the the broader significance of optogenetics clinically you and I know Botan well, and um, you and Botan share uh, this incredible uh, big vision that uh, I think only a clinician can really understand, you know, being in close contact with and uh, the suffering of patients as a ultimate motivator of developing technologies, which makes me have to ask, did you decide to become a scientist to cure, find cures for mental disease? <laughs> Uh, uh, no, I didn't. Uh, it's a, it's a really important question to actually look back and, and see the steps that brought you to a particular place. And that was not, uh, what brought me, uh, initially to science and, and it's okay to, I think, to embrace <laughs> the twists and turns that life, uh, brings uh, to you. But I was always interested in the brain. And so uh, that was something that for me started from a, a very early age. I was, you know, we talked about being introspective. I, I noticed very early on I had a, a deep love of, of poetry and, and stories. And I, I was a voracious reader. Um, and I was amazed by how words could could make me feel in particular ways just the even even separate from their you know of, of course dictionary meanings the the rhythm and how they work together 
even separate from meaning. Um, and I was stunned by poets that could use words in new ways that were even divorced from their meaning at all, and yet could still trigger specific emotions. And I was, that was this was always fascinating to me. So, uh, you know, I, I wanted to understand that. And so I was interested in, 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 I became interested in the brain. And I thought, well, I'm going to have to study the human brain uh, because only human beings can uh, describe what's going on inside uh, enough. So in, in college, I began to steer myself toward uh, medicine and with the idea of becoming a neurosurgeon. And so I, I, uh, I came here uh, to uh, medical school uh, and did an MD-PhD program, uh, planning neurosurgery all the way through. The first rotation I did at the end of medical school, as you know, you do rotations, you go through different specialties, and some of these are required rotations that everybody has to do. Some are elective where you can, you can pick what you want to do. Uh, I elected to do neurosurgery first, even before regular surgery. I was that sure I wanted to do it, and I loved it. I had a fantastic time. There was an amazing patient who had a, a thalamic damage, and there was a neglect syndrome where the patient, you know, was not able to be aware of something that was you know, right in front of him. Even though their vision was perfectly fine. Even though their fine. vision was perfectly yeah. fine, exactly. Um, and so I was, and, and I loved the operating room. I loved uh, the, the the rhythm of, of suturing and the precision of it. And, uh, and I loved being able to help patients immediately. But then uh, a required uh, rotation was in psychiatry, which I was not looking forward to uh, at all. And that uh, completely reset my, my whole life, that, that, experience in psychiatry and and it was it was that at that moment that i saw this is first of all the greatest need the the depth of suffering and the and the depth of the mystery together and also it was and i almost feel a little guilty about this it's so interesting too you know it, yes yes there's yes we can help yes there's need but as a scientist this is amazing that someone's reality can be different for my own, you know, with with everything physically, as far as we can tell, the same uh, with you know, the measures we have, and yet we've got a different reality. That is an amazing thing. And if we can understand that and help these people, that would be uh, just uh, you know more than anybody could ask for. And so that's that's how I ended up uh, taking this path. Just a, a a required rotation in psychiatry. It all started with poetry. And it started with poetry. Yeah, out of, out of um, respect for poetry, are, are there any favorites that you spend time with uh, on a regular basis? I mean, the, the ones who, who got me down this path early on, I remember in, in childhood and high school, uh, uh, Borges had an immense influence on me. Um, I, I, I studied Spanish all the way through and, and, and uh, reading his work. He was a, a great writer. He wrote both in, in English and in Spanish, and, and being able to appreciate his poetry both in English and in Spanish was, was a pretty amazing thing. Not many uh, poets can, can do that. You're bilingual. I, I, I'm not, I, I wouldn't say now I, I became, at one point I was effectively fluent in Spanish, um, and I have, I'm pretty good with medical Spanish still because uh, you know, we use uh, Spanish all the time in the, in the, in the clinic here. Uh, I, I wouldn't claim full fluency, but it's something I can, I definitely use all the time. Um, and it's been very helpful in the clinic. Yeah. Borges is wonderful as the son of an Argentine. I grew up hearing about it and I learned that Borges favorite city was Geneva. Oh. So I spent time in Geneva only for that reason. It also turns out to be an interesting city. <laughs> yes. Um, so 
you developed methods to control neurons with these algae proteins using light. In 2015, there was this, uh, what I thought was a very nice article published in the New Yorker um, describing your work and the current state of um, your work in, in the laboratory, in the clinic, and an interaction with a patient. So this, as I recall, a woman who was severely depressed. And you reported in that article some of the discussion with this patient, and then in real time, increase the activation of the so-called vagus nerve, this 10th cranial nerve that extends out of the skull and innervates many of the, the viscera and, and body. What is the potential for channel rhodopsins or related types of algae engineering to be used to manipulate the vagus? Because I believe in that instance, it wasn't channel opsin stimulation, it was sure. electrical stimulation, right? right? Yeah or to manipulate, for instance, a very small localized region of the brain. Let me frame it a little bit differently in light of what we were talking about a couple minutes ago. My understanding is that if somebody has severe depression and they take any number of the available pharmaceutical agents that are out there, SSRI, serotoninergic agents, increased dopamine, increased whatever, that sometimes they experience relief, but there are often serious side effects. Sometimes they don't experience relief, but as I understand it, channel options and their related technologies in principle would allow you to turn on or off the specific regions of the brain that lead to the depressive symptoms, or maybe you turn up a happiness circuit or an or a uh, a positive anticipation circuit. Where are we at now in terms of bringing this technology to the nervous system? And let's start with the body and then move into the skull. Yeah. So starting with the body is a good example because it it uh, highlights the opportunity and and how far we have to go. So let's take this example of vagus nerve stimulation. So the vagus nerve, it's the 10th cranial nerve. It comes from the brain. It goes down. It innervates the heart, innervates the gut. And by innervate, I mean it sends little connections down to help uh, guide what happens in these these organs in the in the, in the abdomen and, and chest. Uh, it also collects information back, and and there's information coming back from all those organs that go also go through this vagus nerve, the tenth cranial nerve, back to the brain. And so this is somewhat of a of a of a superhighway to the brain. Then it was the idea, and maybe the idea is maybe we could put a little cuff, a little electrical uh, uh, device around the vagus nerve itself, and maybe have just like a pacemaker battery, have a little power source here under the clavicle, everything under the skin and have a little uh, cuff and, and drive signals, and maybe they'll get back to the brain. So a way of getting into the brain without putting something physical into the brain. And why the vagus? I mean, it's there, but and it's accessible. That's the reason. Uh, that's the reason? <laughs> that's the reason, yes. Really? Yeah. You're not kidding. I'm not kidding. So stimulating the vagus to treat depression simply because it's accessible. It started as actually as, a, as an epilepsy uh, treatment, and it, it can help with epilepsy, but Yes, it's simply you got, because you gotta it's love medicine. As a scientist, I got this is where I get to chuckle and just say, I'm in the field of medicine it, from that perspective, from from the perspective of a scientist and outsider, the field of medicine as a field that goes in and tickles pathways because they're there. It's um, I don't know what to say. It's um, a little shocking. Yeah, um, and we all, at least in my laboratory. I always say you never do an experiment because you can, you, you do an experiment to test a specific hypothesis. Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, we there are there are stories people tell. So the the solid the the vagus nerve lands on a particular spot on the brain called the solitary tract nucleus, which is just one synapse away from the serotonin and the dopamine and the norepinephrine. So there's a link to chemical systems in yeah, the brain that yeah. make it a rational choice. It, yes, it's not it's not irrational, but I can tell you that even if that were not true, the same thing would have been tried. You, know, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you because, guys would have done it anyway. because it's accessible. Yeah. I see. Okay. And and but and and why? Well, it's it's not to again not to disparage uh, what what's been happening in this branch of medicine. There's immense suffering. Treatments, many treatments don't work, and and we try things. And and this is how so many advances in medicine happen. You think about uh, kidney dialysis, which has kept many people alive. That that was just started by someone saying, "Hey, let's let's try this. Maybe there's something building up in the blood. Maybe we can dialyze something and help them." Yeah, it worked. And and it was just sort of a test pilot mentality. We can we can access the blood. Let's run it across a dialysis membrane, put it back in the body. Oh my God, that actually works. And sometimes you do need that that test pilot mentality, of course, to do it in a in a rigorous, safe, controlled sure. way, which is what we do. And so. Um, anyway, that's how we, we ended up uh, with, but, but still with the vagus nerve stimulation. Okay, so what does it, does it work? It has, it's FDA approved for depression, uh, this vagus nerve stimulation. But on the population level, if you average across all people, the effect sizes are pretty small. Some patients it has an amazing effect in, uh, uh, but some patients it doesn't work at all. And average across everybody, the effect size is pretty small. How do you think it's working when it does work? Is it triggering the activation of, of neurons that release more serotonin or dopamine? It could be, uh, but I would say we don't have evidence for, for that. Um, and so I, I, I just don't know. But uh, what is clear is that it's dose limited uh, in how high and strongly we can stimulate. And why? It's because it's an electrode and it's stimulating everything nearby. And when you turn on the vagus nerve stimulator, the voice, patient's voice becomes strangulated and hoarse. They can have trouble swallowing. They can have trouble speaking for sure. Uh, even some trouble breathing because everything in the neck, every electrically responsive cell and projection in the, in the neck is being affected by this electrode. And so you can go up just so far with the intensity and then you have to stop. So, you know, to, to your initial question, could a more precise stimulation method uh, like optogenetics help in this setting? In principle, it could because that would, if you would target the light sensitivity to just the right kind of cell, let's say cell X that goes from point A to point B that you know causes symptom relief of a particular kind, then you're in business. You can have that be the only cell that's light sensitive. You're not going to affect any of the other cells, the larynx and the pharynx and the projections passing through. So that's the hope. That's the opportunity. The problem is that we don't yet have that level of specific knowledge. We don't know, okay, it's the cell starting in point A, going to point B that relieves this particular symptom. We want to fix this key on the piano. Yeah. And then I see two other uh, steps that are required. One is to get the channelopsin gene into the cell. In the case of Botan, Roscoe and colleagues uh, rescuing vision in this patient, um, they did that by an injection of a virus that doesn't damage the neurons. The virus itself is fairly innocuous, um, but carries a cargo and it's a one-time injection. The cells express and then they used light to stimulate. So um, let's say uh, I'm depressed, um, which I don't think I am, although now sitting in front of a psychiatrist, <laughs> uh, you probably can see signs that maybe I am or maybe I'm not. But uh, let's say we put channelopsin into my uh, a specific branch of the vagus that we understand is responsible for mood 
um, how are we going to get it in there? And then how are we going to deliver the light? Because we're not talking about sunlight or standing in front of a light bulb necessarily. Okay. But what are what are the mechanisms for the body? Yeah. So we had to solve exactly these questions you're saying. How do you get the light in? How do you get the gene in in a, in a potent and robust and safe way? And it's, that's now solved. And that's not uh, a challenge. So there are very safe, well-tolerated um, uh, gene delivery mechanisms that are called adeno-associated viruses, AAVs. And these are uh, things that are, are associated with the common cold. They themselves don't cause uh, any symptoms. They've been engineered, and there's been a broad community of, of viral engineering that's been going on for decades, making these uh, safer, well-tolerated, and, and so on. We can put the channel rhodopsin gene into these uh, viral vectors uh, that deliver the, the gene, uh, and we can have little bits of additional DNA that govern expression only in one kind of cell, but not another. These are called promoters and enhancers, all genetic tricks built up by a very broad community of, of great scientists over the decades. We can put these different bits of DNA, package them into this AAV, this little virus, and that can be then injected uh, into a particular part of the body. Uh, and sticking with this vagus nerve example, we know that there are particular clumps of neurons. There's one called the nodose ganglion uh, that has a clump of cells related to the vagus nerve. And you could, for example, target a little injection into that ganglion. Would but, that be an outpatient procedure? Yeah, yeah. So you come in in the morning, get your injection, maybe walk out a few hours later. Yeah, that's right. And so that's the gene. Um, then the light delivery, this is also something that, that uh, we've worked out. We've worked on making very, very light sensitive opsins. One challenge, and, and Botan uh, uh, would be the, the first to state this, in fact, in, in solving this problem for the patient, he had to build uh, goggles that uh, created much bright, much brighter light than the normal ambient light uh, delivery. Because as I mentioned earlier, you have to pack a lot of these channel rhodopsins in. They don't have much current. You have to really make sure that you've got intense enough light to activate enough of them to cause a stimulation. And it has to be the right cell. wavelength. Correct? It has to be the right and wavelength. And going back to your example of the algae moving toward or away yeah. uh, uh, the light, it, it has to be tuned just right. So could you, or could I'm imagining in my mind as a non- engineer i know you're also a bioengineer the uh, i'm imagining a little tiny um, blue light emitting um thing object that's a little bigger than a clump of cells or maybe about the size of a clump of cells and for those that don't know you know your cr credit card is about 200 mi um, microns thick on the side and a micron is a thousandth of a millimeter and so we're talking about a little tiny stamp um, that's basically uh, half a millimeter in size um, all around. Yeah. Each edge, half a millimeter in size. I could imagine that being put under my skin yeah. and then I would, what, I'd uh, hit an app on my phone and I'd say, yeah. I'd say, Dr. Dyseroth, I'm not feeling great today. Can I increase the stimulation? And you say, go for it. And then I ramp it up. Is that how it would go? I mean, that's effectively what we already do with the vagus nerve stimulation. The, the doctor in this case, and I, I have this in some of my patients in the clinic, I do vagus nerve stimulation. I talk to them. I say, how I, I go through the symptoms. I, I use the psychiatric interview to elicit their internal states. And then I have a radio frequency controller that I can dial in. Non, right there in real time. Right there in real You're time. You're holding the remote control to, yeah. essentially to their brain, although it's remote, remote yeah. control. Yeah. Through a yeah. couple steps, yeah. but yeah. 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 
and I can I can turn up I can turn up the frequency I can turn up the intensity uh, all with the radio frequency and uh, uh, control and then it's it's reprogrammed or uh, redosed uh, and then the patient can can then leave at this altered dose. So and this is happening now. This is happening right now electrically. Yeah. You do this routinely. I do it routinely in my clinic electrically. Yeah. And you're getting the verbal content, which as you described earlier is the indication of how well something is working in real time. Yes. So this, maybe you could just describe a little bit of the interaction with that particular patient or, or another patient. What's a typical arc of um, narrative as you go from no stimulation to increased stimulation? In most, in most patients, uh, the actual therapeutic effects, the benefits actually take uh, many days to weeks. Um, and so what I'm mostly focusing on in the office in real time is making sure I'm in a safe, low side effect uh, regime. And so first I talk to the patient, you know, how, who, who has been on a particular dose of the stimulation for weeks or, or, or longer. And I, I, I talked about symptoms. How were things over the past uh, month? How was your hope? How was your energy level uh, sleep? Uh, you know, how, what is your mood? Um, and, and then we talk with the patient and we decide, oh, this is, this is not yet where we'd like to be. And so then, I can turn up the intensity of the stimulation in real time in the office. I don't, in most patients, I don't expect an immediate mood change. What I do is I increase the, the dose until uh, uh, a next level up while asking the patient for side effects. Can you still breathe okay? Can you still swallow okay? And I can hear their voice as well. And, and I can get a and sense. And you're looking at their face. And I'm looking at their face. Yeah. And so I can get a sense is there a, uh, am I in a, still in a safe side effect uh, regime? And I, and, and, and then, you know, I, I, I stop at a particular point that looks safe and then patient goes home, comes back a month later and I get the report on how things were over that month. Uh, I asked, uh, if you're looking at their face, cause in your book, um, you describe the incredible complexity of social interactions. And at one point you describe the incredible amount of information that the eyes inform about the brain and and the context of somebody's inner experience whether depressed or happy or otherwise yeah. i want to make sure that we get back to how to maneuver them the, and manipulate the nervous system for sake of mental health but what are you looking for so as a vision scientist, I think, you know, pupils dilating is a sign of arousal, but that could be a positive arousal, positive valence, like excitement, or it could be terror. Yeah. You're going to get the same dilation of the pupils. Um, and, and I'm always reminding people that these two little goodies are two pieces of brain, basically. They're just outside the cranial vault. So they're not unlike the vagus in that sense, but they're more of a report than a control knob, although they, I like to think they could be used as control knobs too. Um, so without putting you on the spot again to diagnose me, uh, something I would never ask you to do uh, with the cameras rolling, but um, what are you looking for that the patient might not be aware of? In other words, can you see depression in somebody's eyes? And if you know a patient or if you don't, can you see it in their body posture when they walk in? Realizing of course that a trained psychiatrist like yourself develops an intuitive sense that's aggregating lots of different features of mm -hmm. a patient. Yeah. But what about the eyes? What's, what's going on there? Yeah. The eyes are incredibly rich in information. And, uh, as you, as you allude to though, it's not as if any one measurable conveys all the information you need. It's what we, you know, what an engineer would say, joint statistics. It's, it's, it's many things all at once, whether they're in synchrony 
or out of synchrony that that actually uh, turns out to matter and uh you know the eye contact question we all know eye contact is incredibly important you don't feel you've connected with with somebody unless you unless there's eye contact but eye contact can go awry too it it can be um it can be too intense or it can be mistimed or if there's uh, someone with autism it can be barely there at all and and this is one of the most striking symptoms of autism is the uh, avoidance of, of eye contact as, as if it's um almost as if it's a harmful uh, a quantity. And so there's an immense amount of information you you get from the eyes, uh, but it's it's the pairing of what's going on in the eyes with everything else going on, the body language, the, the what's the verbal content of what's what's coming out. All that together is 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 the art of of psychiatry and and social interaction. But, you know, sometimes you don't have the eye contact. And this is a, an amazing thing. And I do talk about this in the book as well. In, in many cases, you know, in psychiatry, sometimes it's over the phone that you have to uh, make key decisions. And as a, and I, I recall, you know, vividly being as a resident, uh, very often you have to take these phone calls from uh, uh, people who are not in the hospital, people you can't see, you can't see their eye, you can't see their body, anything about them just the sound of their voice and you can ask them questions and you have to make in some cases life or death decisions you know is this person truly suicidal something like that as it comes up all the time and so i developed over the course of training uh, uh, and i think all all psychiatrists do this is you develop a way to, to whatever data stream you have whether it's the eyes or whether it's just the sound of a voice coming over the phone you learn to home in on that data stream you have and focus on it and identify changes. And it's quite amazing. Uh, I, I found that you, you can actually, uh, if you know a patient, you can detect very precise changes in mood just from the sound of the voice. And, and you can have a, a, a realization that, oh, this patient's depression has improved you know, by, by about half just by the tone of their, of their voice. And same with eyes, you can with enough practice, you can get en enough information from a single data stream to give you some information. But when you do have the whole picture, that of course is best. Yeah. So, um, so many theories out there about um, excessive blinking and lying, uh, lack of blinking and sociopathy. Um, I like to remind people that uh, people have varying degrees of lubrication of the eyes, which also <laughs> influence the frequency of blinking and presumably have nothing to do with uh, whether or not what they're saying is true or not. Uh, but in incredible nonetheless, that it's that the eyes are a portal to overall arousal state. I'm fascinated by the effects of light on circadian biology and just overall desire to be awake or asleep, et cetera. Um, so the eyes are on the outside of the cranial vault. The vagus is outside uh, the, uh, the cranial vault, obviously. Um, what about the goodies in here? Um, Parkinson's, we know the, at least one of the major sites of degeneration and failure that lead to those symptoms. Um, I can name off any number of other things in your book. You talk about the beautiful work done with optogenetics of active versus passive coping, that there are areas of the brain, like the banula that make a, uh, when active, make animals and presumably people a uh, passive and un willing or uninterested in fighting back against pressures of life whereas another region 
the rafe, you stimulate that and and they actively cope. They they get their grit going and they and they are able to lean into life. So how do how does one get to those structures in a in a focused way? And um what what does the next two to five to ten years look like? Yeah. Well this is the this is the promise on that and it is on that time scale uh that I think things may start to play out. You know, the, the specificity of optogenetics uh, is really only useful if you have some idea of how to use that specificity. Um, and it's an actually, it's a frustrating aspect of psychiatry that in many cases, the most effective treatments we have have the least specificity. Electroconvulsive therapy being a great example where you're causing a brain-wide Which looks seizure. barbaric, but as you mentioned, is effective. I mean, it is. It, it, these days, it's it's much more clinically, uh, you know. It doesn't safe, look like one flew, the last no, scene in no, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. No, it nest. doesn't. Now it's a very clinically uh, safe and stable procedure. But I, I, what, where I, I, I would say, yeah, it is, it is, it's got this almost medieval lack of, of specificity even if the procedure is well controlled and, and clinically safe and stable and it, it has a it's not very specific you're causing a brain-wide seizure how, how could you be less specific than that and we don't know the 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 source of the relief we don't we presumably don't it's a dump of neuromodulators like dopamine and serotonin there, we, but we don't there really certainly know. is a dump of neuromodulators okay. we don't know that that's the the, the cause for the relief uh, and likewise with medications this is an also an interesting thing so some of the most effective antidepressants, some of the most effective antipsychotics are the ones that are have the most side effects. And many examples of this, for example, the most effective antipsychotic is something called clozapine, which has, it's unquestionably has the most side effects. It had terrible, terrible side it's effects. It's a D4 antagonist? It has yeah. basically so, every receptor. Yeah. Uh, Does it really? Yeah, it acts, it's, Interesting. Yeah, it, it has prominent serotonin, prominent muscarinic, uh, certainly acts on dopamine receptors, but uh, it, ha- it causes uh, you know blood uh, blood cell uh, counts. How change. do people feel? <laughs> so if 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 um if I were schizophrenic and uh, I was getting auditory hallucinations, et cetera, and I took clozapine, um, what could I expect to feel? Well, uh, so you would notice uh, side effects and you would notice resolution of, of symptoms both. And, and So the voices would go away yeah. if in, in a good situation. That's a, a, right. The voices would go away. That's right. But I would feel not good in my body. You would have, uh, you might have dizziness. You might have uh, a drooling. You might have uh, any number of, of uh, uh, physical sensations that that would be due to these off-target effects the the medication acting on these other receptors that, and i'm certainly not suggesting this but what if somebody without schizophrenia took clozapine uh had the same side effects presumably yeah and so it would not be something that that i would recommend um, yeah. do psychiatrists take the drugs that they prescribe <laughs> i just finished uh for the third time uh, oliver sacks's um yeah autobiography which is marvelous and and i highly recommend to people um he certainly took a lot of drugs um he, not as part of his professional role yeah. um but what, uh, just out of curiosity what is the interest or kind of role of of drugs in the field of psychiatry because for i would imagine for a group of very curious introspective people who are making recommendations about what to take there could actually be some benefit for understanding what the experience of those drugs was like for their patients. I think that's that's true, and I I will say that probably many or most psychiatrists have uh, uh, you know sampled a number of these for exactly the reason that you're saying is is to understand better and to help treat their patients better. And I've I've spoken to people who have 
you know, really been, uh, uh, I found this very helpful to know, okay, this, this sleep disruption caused by this medication or the libido disruption caused by this other medication. Wow. That is, that is a big effect. And, and, and it really helps with empathy for the, for the patients to understand. Uh, I'm not, su- I'm not suggesting that physicians or anybody, um, uh, experiment with drugs, but I, but I am relieved to hear that because I think that when you're talking about act, accessing somebody's mind and their basic physiology, as you mentioned, re- relate to appetite, libido, and sleep. You really, you're really, um, one is acting as a mechanic of, of their, the person's whole experience. They walk out of the office and they have a, a life experience, um, that extends beyond the script. Yeah. yeah. And so, and yeah. And so that's, so with, at the same time though, you can't let that completely guide your clinical decisions because as I mentioned, some of these medications that have the most side effects, they are also the most effective and clozapine is a great example that will work in patients where nothing else works. And believe me, we don't take the step of, of clozapine, uh, prescription lightly because of all these, these side effects, you have to come in for a weekly blood cell or, or every few weeks, a blood cell check to make sure that the blood counts are not off, uh, for example. But there are patients where no other medication works for the schizophrenia and clozapine works amazingly well. And, and, and so we do it even though there are the side effects. And so then this comes back to your, your question. What if we had better and better specificity? Well, only if we know exactly what we're doing is the point. And so, because as we become more refined, uh, we better be right about where we're refining to. Mm-hmm. And, and you imagine a day where it will be a single, um, maybe even outpatient neurosurgery would go in through the skull or the back of the ear, deliver a small viral injection of one of these adenoviruses, a little sticker of light emitting diode. Is that um, it deep in the brain? Is that how you envision this someday? That, that certainly could happen. What I what I actually uh, prefer as a vision is, is still medications uh, because uh, those are you know, minimally invasive. Uh, if we knew what we were doing, we could make them more specific. Uh, have fewer side effects, but optogenetics that'll arm us with true causal understanding. And so we'll know, uh, and we're already moving rapidly toward this point. We'll know, okay, this symptom, the loss of pleasure in life that we call anhedonia or the loss of, of motivation or, or, or energy to overcome challenges, active coping. Um, these are largely subserved, largely controlled by this circuit or that circuit or the cell that inhabits this other circuit. And we will know that because of the work done with channel ops. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah I agree. In yeah. ways that yeah. we, we never could have the confidence uh, otherwise. Uh, and so we'll know that this is the circuit that, that underlies the symptom or its resolution. And then we'll get to understand these cells very deeply. Okay, these cells that are causal, that do matter, who are they? What are they? What's their wiring? What are the proteins that they make? What are the little things that are on the surface of the cell that could be receptors for specific medications or combinations of receptors that would give us the specificity we need? And then armed with that causal and precise and rigorous knowledge, then you can imagine medication development becoming totally different, no longer serendipitous but truly grounded in causality. I see. So using channel options as a way to probe the circuitry and figure out the sites that are disrupted, what patterns of activity are required. And then by understanding the constituents of those cells, like what they express and what they make, then developing drugs that could target those cells, not necessarily putting light inducing diodes into the brain or walking around with wire packs attached to our skull or something like that. That's fantastic. And, and you, 
it, I realize no one has a crystal ball, but um, what do you think the arc of um, of that is? Meaning, are we going to see that in a year, in two years, three years? In, in, let me reframe that. If how soon will a pill based treatment for a psychiatric disease be available that targets a specific set of cells that we know are important? because of the work done with channel options? I think uh, that is, in some ways, it's already uh, happening at the level of individual patients. Uh, and Here at Stanford? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and, and more broadly in terms of uh, new, new drugs, new multicenter you know, uh, clinical trials, that'll play out over the next uh, few years. Um, and these could be drugs that are already safe and approved for other purposes uh but we might say okay now we know that this medication uh based on what we know from causal optogenetics this could be useful for this other purpose this psychiatric symptom and so the path uh to to helping patients is could be relatively uh, swift that's very exciting what are your thoughts about um brain machine interface and um Neuralink always comes up, although I do want to point out it, um, I have tremendous respect for the folks at Neuralink, including someone who came up through my lab is now there as a neurosurgeon, but um, the brain machine interface is something that's been happening for a long time now. Some of the, some of the best work, uh, among the best work being done here at Stanford and elsewhere too, of course. How is the what you just described compatible with or different than brain machine interface, meaning devices, little probes are going to stimulate different patterns of activity in ensembles of neurons? And what are your general thoughts about um, brain machine interface as going forward? Yeah, I mean, this is uh, first of all, it's an it's an amazing uh, scientific discovery approach. Uh, as you mentioned, we and others here at Stanford are using uh, electrodes collecting information from tens of thousands of neurons. In humans, I should add, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and even yes, there was there's uh, it is quite even separate from the Neuralink work, as you point out. Many people have been doing this uh, uh, in humans as well as in non-human primates, um, and this is pretty uh, powerful. It's important. This will let us uh, understand what's going on in the brain in uh, in psychiatric disease and neurological disease, and will give us ideas for for treatment. Um, it is, of course, it's still uh, invasive. You still are talking about putting a device uh, uh, into the brain, uh, and that has to be uh, uh, treated as a, as, a, as a situation that has some risks and, and a step that has to be taken carefully. I see that as something that will be part of psychiatry uh, in, in, in the long run. Already with deep brain stimulation uh, approaches, we can help uh, people with psychiatric disorders. And that's putting just a single electrode, not even a a complex, you know, uh, closed loop system where you're both playing in and getting information back. Even just a single stimulation electrode in the brain can help people with uh, OCD, for example, uh, quite powerfully. Uh, And that will become much more powerful when we get to a true brain machine interface, collecting information back stimulating only when you need to. If we could identify a pathological activity pattern, a particular, almost like the the prodrome or the early stage of a seizure, maybe there are events that happen leading up to, on some time scale, uh, a psychiatric uh, symptom, we could intervene in a, a closed loop way, detect what's happening, what's starting to go wrong, 
feed that back to the brain stimulation electrode, have it be, you know, in that way more efficient and more principled. This is, is uh, I think, uh, it's great. It's, it's a, something that, of course, will be grounded again in causal understanding. We'll need to know what is that pathological pattern that we're detecting, and we need to know that it matters. And so, again, that's where optogenetics is helping us, helping us know, okay, this, this pattern of activity in these cells, in these circuits, this does mean that there's a particular kind of, of, of symptom that's happening. But armed with that knowledge, absolutely, even the even the simple closed loop device detect and stimulate is going to be part of psychiatry in the future. And then and then of course, as you get to more cells, more connections, the ability that we have to help people will become more powerful. One of the questions I get asked a lot is about um, ADHD and attention deficit of various kinds. I have the uh, hunch that uh, one reason I get asked so often is that people are feeling really distracted and and challenged in um, funneling their attention and their behavior. But, uh, and there are a number of reasons for that, of course, but what is true ADHD and what does it look like? What can be done for it? And uh, what, if any role for channel options or these downstream technologies that you're developing, um, what do they, what do they offer for people that suffer from ADHD or have a family member that suffers from ADHD. Yeah. This is a, it's a pretty interesting branch of, of psychiatry. There's no question that people have been helped by the, the treatments. Uh, there's, you know, active, you know, debate over, you know, uh, what fraction of people who have these symptoms uh, can or should be, be uh, treated. This is typically Adderall or stimulants of yeah, some kind. For example, stimulants, that's right. Um, so ADHD, it's, as, as its name suggests, it has uh, symptoms of, uh, it can have either a hyperactive uh, state or an inattentive uh, state. And uh, those can be completely separate from each other. You could have a patient who, who uh, effectively uh, is, is not hyperactive at all, but can't uh, remain focused on the, the what's going on around them. So their body can be still, but their, their mind is darting around. That's right. That's or right. they can be very hyperactive with yeah. their body. Yeah, it happens both Probably ways. rarely is somebody hyperactive with their body, but their mind is still. <laughs> Although I have to say, and this is a, a benevolent shout out to Botan Raska, Botan has an incredibly sharp and focused mind. Yeah. And his hand movements are extremely exact also. So I do sometimes wonder whether or not our body movements and our head movements are, uh, whether or not they're coordinated or not is a, is a readout of, of yeah. how directed our attention is. Yeah. I, I notice I have to think complex, abstract thoughts. I notice I have to be very still. So my body has to be almost completely unmoving for me to think very abstractly. And, and deeply. Uh, other people are different. Some people, when they're running, they get their best thoughts. I can't even imagine that. My brain does not work that way at all. I have to be totally motionless, <laughs> which is kind of interesting. How do you go about that? I, I, I sit uh, much like this. You know, I, I, I try to have time in each day where I am I'm literally uh, sitting uh, uh, almost in this in this position, um, but but without distraction and, and thinking. And, and it, so it's kind of a, it's almost meditative in some ways, except it's, it's not uh, true meditation, but I, I am thinking while not moving. In, uh, you're struck, you're trying to structure your thoughts yeah. in that time. Yeah. Interesting. Right. Yeah. So, but everybody, as you say, is, is, is very different. And so with, with ADHD, you have, the key thing is we want to make sure that this is present across different domains of life, so school and home, to show that it really is a pervasive pattern uh, and not something specific to, oh, you know, the teacher or the, the home situation or something. 
And then you can help patients. It's interesting that, that ADHD is one of those disorders where people are trying to work on quantitative EEG-based diagnoses. And so there's some progress toward making up a, a diagnosis with looking at particular externally detectable brainwave uh, rhythms. So skull cap with yeah. some electrodes that don't penetrate the skull. That's right. And this can be done in an hour or two hour session. Yeah, that's right. has to be done in a clinic, right? Yeah, yeah, in the clinic, right. You have to have the right recording apparatus and so on. But but, but uh, that's in principle, uh, as you increasing confidence comes in exactly which measurement uh, one could even imagine moving toward, you know, home tests, um, but we're not there yet. Amazing. I think um, one of the reasons I get asked about it so much is a lot of people wonder if they have ADHD. Uh, do you think that some of the lifestyle factors that um, inhabit us all these days could induce a subclinical or a clinical-like um, ADHD? Meaning if I look at people's phone use, including my own, and I don't think of it like addiction. It looks to me and feels to me more like OCD. And I'll come clean here by saying when I was younger, when I was a kid, I had a grunting tick. Hmm. I used to hide it. I actually used to hide in the closet because my dad would make me stop. And I I used to, I couldn't feel any relief of my mind until I would do this. And actually now, if I get very tired, if I've been pushing long hours, it'll come back. Interesting. I was not treated for it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I will confess that I've had the experience of, I always liked sports where I involve a lot of impact. Fortunately, not football, yeah. because I went to a high school where the football team was terrible. <laughs> Maybe that would have avoided more impact. <laughs> but things like skateboarding, boxing, mm-hmm. they bring relief. Mm-hmm. I feel clarity mm-hmm. after a head hit, which I avoid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, but I used to say that's the only time I feel truly clear for a lot. And then eventually it dissipated oh, by about age 16, 17, it just disappeared. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I have great uh, empathy for those that feel like there's something contained in them that won't allow them to focus on what they want to focus on. And these days with the phone and and all these uh, email, et cetera, I, I wonder and I empathize a bit when I hear people saying like, I think I might have ADHD or ADD. Do you think it's possible that our behaviors and our interaction with the sensory world, which is really what phones and email really are, could induce ADD or reactivate it? You know, I, this is a great question. I, I think about it a lot. There's, you know, and, and you, you mentioned this this uh, tick-like behavior in, in yourself. It's very common that people who have ticks have this building up of something that can only be relieved by executing the, the tick, which can be a motor movement or, or vocalization or even a thought. And, and and people do, I think these days do have this, if they haven't checked their phone in a while, they do have a build up and build up a build up until they can, they can check it and relieve it. Um, and, and, and there's some similarities, you know, there is a little reward that comes with the, with the, the, the checking. Um, but the, the key question in all of psychiatry, what we do is we, we don't diagnose something unless it's, disrupting what we call social or occupational functioning. Like you could have any number of symptoms, but literally every, every psychiatric diagnosis requires that it has to be disrupting someone's social or occupational functioning. And these days, you know, checking your phone is pretty adaptive. That pretty much helps your social and occupational functioning. And so we can't, we can't make, we can't make it a, a psychiatric diagnosis. It's, Interesting. It, at least in the world of today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, opting out of communication now makes it uh, makes you in some ways less adaptive. Though I would point to you as an example of somebody who 
uh, is quite good at managing his uh, interactions, at least from a, from the outsider perspective. I do want to ask you a little bit about you. And um, first of all, um, and I realize this is only a partial list, but uh, you're a clinician, you see patients, you run a big laboratory. How many people are in your laboratory now? That's a huge laboratory um, from experience. I can say that's, a, that's an enormous laboratory. Um, you have a family of five children and you're happily married uh, to a wonderful colleague of ours as well, who does incredible work. Um, how, how do you organize at a kind of conceptual level the day and the week? Um, and I should say, what stress mitigation practices, if any, do you incorporate? I've received emails from you at three in the morning. Uh, I sometimes send emails at three in the morning, but that's when I wake up. Maybe I'm depressed, but I go back to sleep. So maybe you just describe um, the arc of, of the blocks of the day, not hour by hour, necessarily the details of what are in those blocks, but how do you conceptualize the day? How do you conceptualize the week? And how do you feel about how that's um, lined up with your, your larger goals of, of you know, making sure these five uh, young people you know, flourish, which I hear they are. Um, but how, how do you go about this? What for most people would just be an overwhelming set of, of items? Well, it's, uh, of course, uh, it's sometimes it's just to take it day by day. And, and, uh, and so I, I don't claim so you bring the horizon into the unit of the day. I, I, I do. I do. It's it, the unit is the day. That's right. And, um, what I, I try to have in each day, as I mentioned earlier, some, at least an hour of time where I can think, uh, and, and that can be, it can be when kids are napping. It can be, um, you know, Actually, because I, while driving, I can do that too, uh, because I'm sitting still. <clears throat> um, but, uh, that, that's the, the one thing I try to preserve. Uh, when I was writing the book, I adapted that time to be my, my writing time, but it wasn't enough. Uh, it's, you know, uh, so I had to add in a new block of time, which was sort of midnight to 2 AM writing time. Um, and, and so that Carving out these even small protected times are very important. Uh, there's, of course, you know, obligations will will expand to fit, fill the time available, and you have to be disciplined. In my, at least, uh, I found I had to be disciplined in in truly protecting those uh, times where where one can think. So that means no phone. That means no phone, no checking of the phone. Um, uh, I would, you know, when I was writing the book, I would I would have. Uh, 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 there's a focus mode on the the, the um, MacBook, but which uh, kind of removes the border, and you just have your 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 document, and it's it's very pure, and you don't have uh, a, a temptation of, of distraction. I'm a big believer in because the vision and the eyes play such a prominent role in directing our cognition. Something you talk about in the book mm -hmm. um, really beautifully, and with a lot of depth and rigor, uh, using visual tools to harness one's complete mental attention. When you do this practice of sitting and just thinking, sitting still and thinking, you said your eyes are open. Um, are you hearing your own verbal voice, although in mm -hmm. your head? Yes. Yeah. So you're actually in conversation with yourself. Yes. And and hearing literally, I mean, not quite literally, I don't actually hear a phonation, but I, I, I'm hearing words. Uh, and so it's, I'm, I discovered this about myself. Other people, uh, I think, you know, may operate uh, 
differently, but I'm extremely verbal in how I think. That's how all my reasoning is done. It's with sentences and <laughs> construction of, of uh, you know, almost equations with words. Complete sentences? C- complete sentences mm-hmm. or complete-ish anyway, uh, mostly complete. And then, and when writing the book, everything about the writing, I would always, every sentence was always played out in my mind, listening for, for rhythm and timing. And, and, and I would obsess over exact placement of, of words to get the right rhythm of the spoken sentence in my, in my mind. Could I, I don't mean to interrupt your flow, but when you do that, and having experienced this process a bit, although d- differently, do you experience any kind of welling up of anxiety when you're hitting the, the friction points? Um, and if so, do you have tools or uh, ways that you quell that anxiety in real time? Because what we're really talking about here is um, your mind. But what we're really talking about is this process of of converting the activity of neurons into something physically concrete in the world. And these intermediate steps are so mysterious to everybody. We hear, you know, just write the book, just do it, whatever that means. In fact, statements like that to me are kind of empty and meaningless. Um, But when you hear your voice and you're trying to find the correct word and you keep hitting, it doesn't sound quite right. What is the experience in your body? Yeah, I when it's not right, it's definitely uh, it, it it's aversive. Uh, it doesn't feel good, um, but it's not. Um, but I but there's also a hope because I know I can solve it too. And mm-hmm. and so there's there's this. Uh, it, it's almost like you're you're almost there. You know, you've, there's a, a path that you know is there. You, you don't quite see it, but it's there. And and I, I keep that in mind. And so there's there's a there's a there's this. Uh, propulsive force forward uh because i know that the solution is there and and that said i you know there were there were single words that would occupy you know i would spend days on you know because i was just not happy until i got it right and there were some things that i never quite got perfect and so i left out of the book entirely because it was so close but not not quite there and so i at the end i was like no i can't put that in Everything you just said is entirely consistent with my experience of you <laughs> and the way you go about uh, everything. I have to ask, are, are your kids writers? Do they like books and words and, and poetry? I, I know one of your children is going on to a career in medicine and science. Yeah, they're, they're each different, which is amazing. Yet they all, I think, do have some appreciation or a lot of appreciation for, for, for reading. Um, but some are very musical two of the five are extremely musical very very talented with guitar and singing and and vocal you know impressions uh it's just astonishing uh and and some of them are are great with drawing and and artistry and and some are very physical and vigorous and and are never uh, happy except when you know leaping about and so it's it's just amazing how different they are honestly but but i think there is a, a shared appreciation for for language do you think the uh that one can train their mind in the, using these practices. I, I I really like your description of the um, sitting, staying physically still, and and learning to grapple with those those challenges. It's something that, especially in laboratory science, we aren't really trained to do. Um, like many professions, we're taught to come in and just get into motion. And, and I found that very relaxing as someone who probably has an underlying uh, tick or something like that. It felt great to be in motion. One of the hardest things about becoming a university professor and running a lab was that I no longer working with my hands. And it, it felt like I was, I, it felt like at some 
big important part of my life had been amputated. <laughs> but what sorts of practices do you incorporate there? And do you think um, people can learn to get better at focusing through a dedicated practice of the sort that you describe? I think, uh, you know, I also, you know, I, I, I remember the rhythms of, of physical work in the laboratory very well. I, I, uh, my work, uh, you know, these days as, as, as the laboratory leader, my job has returned mostly to words now again. And, and so it's, it's kind of coming full circle. I was, uh, um, uh, and so it's a different mode. I think you just have to embrace that, that different stages of life come with, with different modes, but you can definitely train yourself for each mode. I was not, um, you know, I, I, I loved, you know, the, as I mentioned, the, the, the rhythm of, of sewing and, and, and suturing and, and surgery. Um, and I worked really hard on that and became, you know, good at it. And now I, I never do it, um, but it's what's the next challenge? You know, there's all the various experimental techniques, the dissections of the brain. You know, I, I can't tell you how many thousands of brain dissections I've done in my life. And now I don't do them at all. <laughs> and then you developed a method so that we don't have to dissect brains. <laughs> I should mention, maybe tell us for a moment about clarity and yeah. for the for um, people who will probably never set foot into a laboratory. Um, what an incredible yet another incredible discover, discovery and development clarity is uh and why it helps us understand how the brain is structured yeah so this is this is a different technology also developed in in my lab here and it's a, a part of a broader approach that we call hydrogel tissue chemistry and what this is is it's building a gel like a, a clear jello like uh substance with from within all the cells of a tissue uh or even an animal all at once so you're building a effectively building a gel inside all the cells at once now that's a odd thing to do uh why do we do it well we do it uh to transform the tissue into a more tractable accessible uh, object and the reason that works is we having built this gel this new infrastructure inside the tissue we can then use chemical tricks and we can link the molecules we care about like proteins or RNAs, which are the things, as you know, right before they become proteins, we can link them physically, anchor them to this gel, which is a scaffold, basically. It's an interlocking network of, of polymers. We can link all these interesting molecules in place, lock them in where they were initially, in the tissue, in the cell, in all the cells, and then we can remove very vigorously everything we don't care about that's blocking our light that's blocking our molecules coming in to exchange information with the tissue we can get rid of everything else like the lipids the fats we can effectively use detergents to to get them all out and then we can see in all the things that we're absorbing or scattering light are gone you can have a brain that's completely transparent and yet all the interesting molecules are still locked into place there at the cellular and subcellular level and so this is hydrogel tissue chemistry the first form we described was called clarity uh, we use that uh, quite a bit still but there are many variants now that we and others have developed on this basic uh, concept of building this gel within the tissue and anchoring molecules into place literally glass clear brains i've done yep. this i've taken a brain cleared with this method yeah. and looked at somebody through it. And uh, <laughs> although you don't want to get it too close to your eye, you don't yeah. want to touch it to your own eye, but, um, and you can see direct all the way through it. Yeah. Um, that's incredible for the, it raises an important question, which is about, again about the human brain. 
and as somebody who essentially started out in neuroanatomy and then got into other things, I, I always am um, bothered by the fact that we actually know very little about the microstructure of the human brain compared to the brains of other organisms. Yeah. And in thinking about understanding the circuitry and the, the piano, so to speak, that, and how to manipulate it in order to um, relieve suffering, one wonders are the structures in these animal brains uh, and how they behave in active coping, passive coping, ADD, et cetera, those models, how well they translate to the human condition. Do you think it's fair to say that there are entire regions of the human brain that aren't just bigger, but that exist only in the brains of humans, especially given that we have this speech? Although I do wonder sometimes if, you know, animals are reporting to each other there. Maybe they have little psychiatric sessions with one another. You know, I, I, I'm always careful to not uh, assume we do things better. Uh, we certainly understand what we're doing better than we understand what animals are doing. And, and they certainly do things better than, than we do. That said, we do have uh, amazing, wonderful brains and many structures that are very highly developed in our brains that are, are, are not nearly so developed in mice and, uh, and fish, for example. Now, um, that said, when I look at the big picture, you know, what, what is the mammalian brain really doing? There are things that you would never have thought we could study in, in animals and in, in laboratory mammals like mice. Uh, that it turns out you can actually. Uh, and, and so I would never draw the line and say, here's something you, you can't study in mice or here's something that has no parallel in mice. I would be very careful before making any, any statement like that. A good example of that is we've been able to study just in the past year, come to an understanding of dissociation. And both, we had a paper that came out in late 2020, both mouse and human work in which we got to the sort of the circuit basis for dissociation. Now, what is dissociation? A lot of people might not have experienced it, but it's actually very common. More than 70% of people who've been through trauma experience dissociation. It shows up in borderline personality. It shows up in PTSD. What it is, is a separation of the sense of self from the body. And so you can have someone who's, it's not as if you're numb, you're not anesthetized, you can still, you know that something's happening to the body, but you, you just don't care because you don't ascribe it to yourself, which is very interesting, right? That is, how interesting is that? The self-report narrative. Yeah. yeah. Almost uh, in your book, you touch on this. Um, and I, I will say is the most um, precise and meaningful and eloquent description of what might be consciousness, this, this narrative toward the self or of the self and where it might reside. So in dissociative conditions, um, people are, are feeling as kind of an absence of a merge between mind and body. Right. Is that one way That's to right. describe it? That's right. And as I recall, this paper involved um, an exploration of ketamine. Ketamine was a big part of it. Yeah, that's right. And so ketamine is, is another one of those cases where people can experience dissociation. Uh, ketamine or PCP, we call these the dissociative uh, drugs. They cause it just like uh, these these other psychiatric uh, conditions can cause it. And so we, but we were able to manifest this in, in mice, administering these dissociative agents in mice. We could make them still able to detect stimulus, but not care that it was, was happening. All the while we were recording the activity of individual cells in the brain to see what was going on, what what was happening along with this dissociation, and then use optogenetics to see that it mattered 
to actually provide that pattern of activity and say, oh, that actually causes the dissociation. So we could do all that in mice, you know, which which was you know just a who would have thought that that you could study something like this in mice, and we were able to go back and forth with uh, human uh, work because here at in our Stanford Comprehensive Epilepsy Center there are there's a lot of what we call stereo EEG recording patients who come in and in the course of normal clinical care they have electrodes recording in their brain to identify where the seizure is so they can uh, be candidates for removing. A little patch of the brain that's causing the seizure. This is done for patients who medications are not helping their seizure disorder. And there was a, a, a patient who had a dissociative state before every seizure. So this was a human being who was really dissociating, who could tell us literally as it was happening. And we could see this pattern, the same pattern that was happening in the mice in the same patch of the brain. We could see that happening in the human being at exactly the right time in the same patch of the brain that's homologous across these immense evolutionary distances. And we knew that it mattered too, both in mouse and human, because in the human, we could cause it to happen. So and I just want to underscore the power of not just uh, that. I want to underscore the power of, of optogenetics and the ability to not just remove a particular experience or behavior by lesioning or destroying, but then to go back and, and actually activate the same structure or group of structures and see the emergence. So it's essentially at these days, you hear a lot about gain of function research in the context of viral manipulation, but gain of function is something that we do in the laboratory and, and, and uh, you do in patients to both take away something and put it back and which gives you causality. That's right. right. Yeah. And so, and exactly. And so with optogenetics, we were able to provide uh, in animals without being on any any ketamine or any any drug, and we could cause the dissociative state by playing in a precise pattern of activity. And that, who would have thought you could do that? But there was a, a combined mouse and human paper. Likewise, likewise, we've been able to play in uh, uh, you know visual sensations into the brains of of mice, uh, and by observing which cells in the visual part of the brain, visual cortex, are naturally responsive to, for example, vertical bars instead of horizontal bars in the visual world, we could see which cells were normally reporting on vertical bars, and then we could use optogenetics to come and play in activity just to those cells. So these animals are not viewing anything. Not viewing anything at all, and we could activate just the vertical bar cells, and not only did the animal act as if it was seeing a vertical bar behaviorally, it was trained to do a particular thing if it saw a vertical bar, and it did that just as if it was seeing something visually, but everything in the brain that we were recording too, the internal representation of this external world was naturalistic too. It looked like the, the, the brain was seeing something visual. So that was another, that's gain of function too, you know, playing in, providing a complex sensation or percept that wasn't there before. And we can do that in, uh, you know, across species. So I, I, we haven't, you know, and of course mice are social and, and, and they do they do amazing acts of information processing. And, and so I'm, I don't, uh, I try not to disparage our, our cousins uh, too much. They certainly have helped the field of neuroscience yes. and medicine, I should mention. And I know that people have various sensitivities about animal research, but the work that's been carried out in mice has been absolutely um, vital and instructional for the, for treatment of human disease. That's right. Since we talked about uh, dissociation, and dissociative uh, states rather, and ketamine, I'd love your thoughts on uh, psychedelic medicine. You know, I uh, 
sort of half joke, having grown up in this area in Northern California, when it was much more counterculture than it is now, uh, that many of the things that we're hearing about now, uh, at least from my read of the of the history books, happened before. There was a movement uh, aimed at taking the very same compounds, essentially, putting them into patients, or it, people were obviously using them recreationally, but putting them into patients and seeing tremendous positive effects, but also um, tremendous examples of um, induced psychiatric illness. In other words, many people lost their minds as a consequence of overuse of psychedelics. I'll probably lose a few um, people out there, uh, but I do wanna talk about what is the state of these compounds? And I realize it's a huge category of compounds, but LSD and psilocybin, as I understand, trigger activation of particular serotonin receptor mechanisms may or may not lead to more widespread activation of the brain more that one wouldn't see otherwise. But when you look at the clinical and experimental literature, what is your sort of top contour sense of how effective these tools are going to be for treating depression? And then if we have the time, we could talk about trauma and MDMA mm -hmm. and some of that work. Yeah. Well, you're, you're right to highlight both the opportunity and, and the peril that is there. Um, and of course we want to help patients and of course we want to, to explore anything that might uh, be, be helpful and what we want to do it in a safe and, and rigorous way. But I, I do think we should explore these, these avenues. These are um, agents that alter reality and alter the experience of reality, I should say, in, in relatively precise ways. They, they do have problems. They can be addictive. They can cause lasting change that is not desirable. Um, but we have to see these as opportunities. We have to, uh, first of all, study in the laboratory. And I'm doing this uh, here. Uh, you know, I, we have <laughs> big... Uh, we have safes with many interesting psychedelics that are all very carefully regulated. We get inspections from the DEA and so on. If anyone's hoping to find these labs, they exist in outer space, so you need a, you need to be on board one of the one of the SpaceX um, missions in order to access them. So don't try and come yeah, find them. No, that's exactly yeah. true. Yes, um, and and uh, and and we're doing exactly this. We're we're saying this is an incredible opportunity. If we could understand how. You know the perception of reality is altered we could be create a new kinds of intervention that don't have the uh, risks and and and, and the, the problems of, of causing lasting change or, or addiction now that said uh even as these medications exist now as you know there's uh, an impulse to to use them in very small doses and to use them as adjunctive uh, treatments for for the therapy of, of various kinds and i i'm also supportive of that if done you know carefully and, and rigorously of course there's risk but there's risk with many other kinds of, of treatment and i'm not sure that the risks uh, for these uh, medications uh, vastly outweigh the risks that we normally tolerate in other branches of medicine. Why would they work? I mean, the, um, you know, let's say uh, that indeed their main effect is to create more, uh, more connectivity, at least in the, in the moment uh, between brain areas. So uh, the way I think about a very, um, I think about the two extremes of, of my experience anyways, uh, a high degree of stress and focus for whatever reason is going to make, create changes in my visual field and cr changes in the way that I perceive time so that I'm gonna micro slice time. I'm, my, I'm in a very contracted view of whatever my experience is. Whereas on the opposite extreme, in a, in a dream or in sleep, space and time are very fluid. 
and I'm essentially relaxed, although it might be a very interesting dream. It might not be. Uh, psychedelics seem to be a, a trajectory I'm not off too far off from the dream state where space and time are essentially not as rigid. And there is this element of synesthesia, of blending of the senses, um, you know, feeling colors and um, hearing uh, light and things of that sort. It You hear these reports anyway. Um, why would having that dreamlike experience somehow relieve depression long-term? Is, is, do we have any idea why that might be? Yeah. I, uh, we have some ideas and uh, no, no deep understanding. Uh, one way I, I think about the psychedelics is they um, increase our willingness to, our, they increase the willingness of our brain to accept uh, unlikely uh ways of constructing the world unlikely hypotheses as it were as to what's going on the brain in particular our cortex i think is a hypothesis generation and testing machine it's coming up with models about everything it's got a lot of bits of data coming in and it's making models and updating the models and changing them theories hypotheses for what's going on and some of those never reach our conscious mind and this is something i talk about in projections in the in the book uh, uh, quite a bit is Many of these are filtered out before they get to our, our conscious mind, and that's good. We, we, we think how distracted we'd be if we were constantly having to evaluate all these you know, hypotheses about you know, what kinds of shapes or objects or processes were out there. And so a lot of this is, is handled uh, uh, before it gets to consciousness. What the psychedelics seem to do is they change the uh, threshold for us to become aware of these incomplete hypotheses or wrong hypotheses or or concepts that might be noise uh, but are just wrong and so are never allowed to get into our, our conscious mind now you know that that's pretty interesting and it goes wrong in psychiatric disorders i think uh in in schizophrenia that sometimes the paranoid uh, uh delusions that people have are examples of these uh poor models that escape into the conscious mind and become uh, accepted as reality and they never should have gotten out there now, how could something like this in the right way help with something like depression? Patients with depression often are uh, are stuck. They, they can't uh, uh, look into the future world of possibilities as effectively. There's everything seems uh, hopeless. And what does that really mean? They they discount the value of their own action. They discount the value of the world at giving rise to a future that matters. Everything seems to run out like a river just running out into a desert and drying up. And what these agents may do that increase the, the, the flow through circuitry, if you will, the percolation of activity through circuitry may uh, end up doing for depression is increasing the, the, the escape of some, some tendrils of of, of process of, of forward progression through through the world um, that's a concept it's how I think about it there are ways we can make that rigorous we we can indeed identify in the brain by recording we can see cells that represent steps along a path and look into the future and we can rigorously define these cells and we can see if these are altered on psychedelics and so that's one of the reasons that we're uh, working with these agents in the laboratory to say, are, is this really the case? Are, are these opening up new paths uh, or or representations of paths into the future? Mm -hmm.
Um, MDMA, uh, ecstasy, is a unique compound in that it leads to big increases in brain levels of dopamine and serotonin simultaneously. And uh, I realized that the neuromodulators like dopamine and serotonin often work in concert, not alone, the way they're commonly described in the uh, you know the more general popular discussions. However, uh, it is a unique compound and it's different than these serotonergic compounds like LSD and psilocybin. And there are now data um, still emerging that it might be, and, and in some cases, can be useful for the treatment of trauma, PTSD and, and similar things. Why, why would that work? And do you, th and a larger question, perhaps the more important question is psychedelics, MDMA, LSD, all those compounds there to, in my mind, there are two components. There's the experience you have while you're on them. And then there's the effect they have after people are generating variations of these compounds that are non hallucinatory variations but how crucial do you think it is to have the, let's stay with mdma the experience of huge levels of dopamine huge levels of serotonin atypical levels of dopamine and serotonin released having this highly abnormal experience in order to be normal again yeah i think the brain learns from those experiences that's that's the way i see it and and so for example people on who've taken mdma they will as you say, they'll have, they'll be the acute phase of being, you know, on the the, the drug and experiencing the, this extreme connectedness with other people, for example, and then the the drug uh, wears off, and but the brain learned from that experience, and so what what people will report is, yeah, I'm not I'm not in that state, but I saw what was possible. You know, I saw, yeah, you can. There don't need to be barriers, or at least not as many barriers as as I thought. I can connect with more people in a in a way that that is helpful. And so I think it, it's the learning that happens in that state that actually uh, matters. And this, as you described that, that sounds a lot like what I understand to be the hallmark feature of really good psychoanalysis: that the relationship between patient and therapist hopefully evolves to the point where. Um, uh, these kinds of tests can be run within the context of that relationship and then exported yeah. to other relations. Is that exactly right? Yeah. And, and that probably I'm assuming is still the goal of really good psychiatry also. It's a part of uh, it, intimacy. It should, really? It, it should be uh, when we have time, I think all, all good psychiatrists try to achieve that, that level of, of, of connection and learning, uh, try to help patients um, create a new, a new model that is stable that is learned and that, that can you know, help instruct future behavior. One of the things that I um, took from reading your book, in addition to uh, learning so much science and the future of psychiatry and brain science was, um, it, you know, amidst these very many, in many cases, very tragic cases and, and sadness and a lot of the, the, uh, the weight that that puts on the clinician on you also that there's a, that there's a, central cord of, of optimism that where we're headed is uh, not just um, possible, but very likely and, and better. Yeah. And um, you know, it, are you an optimist? I am. And this, this is, by the way, this was a really interesting experience in writing projections because I had a, a, a dual goal. I wanted it to be for everybody, literally everybody in the world who wants to, 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 to read it. And yet at the same time, I wanted to 
stay absolutely rigorously close to the the science, what was actually known um, when I was speaking about science, when I was speaking about the the neurobiology of the of the brain or, or psychiatry. I wanted to to not have any of my scientific colleagues think, oh, he's he's going too far, he's saying too much. And so I had these these two goals, which I kept in my mind the entire time. And, and a lot of this trying to find exactly the right word we talked about was on this path of staying excruciatingly rigorous in the science and yet letting people see the hope, the, the, where things were, have everybody see that we've come a long way, we have a long way to go. But but the trajectory and the, the path is, is beautiful. And so that, that, that was the, the goal. I, I, I think, uh, you know, of course that sounds almost impossible to, to <laughs> jointly satisfy those two, those two goals, but I, I kept that in my mind the whole way through. And yes, I am optimistic. I, and I hope that came through in the book. But it certainly did. And at least from this colleague, um, uh, you, you did achieve both. And um, it's a wonderful, it's it's a masterful book, really, and one that, as a scientist and um, somebody who is a bra- uh, fellow brain explorer, uh, hits all the marks of of rigor and is incredibly interesting. And there's a ton of storytelling. I don't want to give away too much about it, but people should definitely check out the book. Um, uh, are you active on social media if people uh, want to follow you and, yeah. and connect with what you're doing now and, and going forward? Yeah, I have a, a Twitter. Uh, that's where I, I, I mainly uh, do uh, exchange, you know, tell people about things that are, are happening. Uh, we'll provide a link to it, but that's Carl Diceroth, as I recall, with a K. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And um, so you're on Twitter and um, people uh, will hear this. Definitely uh, check out the book. Um, there are other people in our community that, uh, of course, are going to uh, uh be reaching out on your behalf, but it's, it's incredible that you juggle this enormous number of things. Um, perhaps even more important, however, is that it's all in service to this larger thing of relieving suffering. So thank you so much for your time today for the book and the work that went into the book. I can't even imagine for the laboratory work and the development of channel options, clarity and all the related technologies and, and for the clinical work you're doing and, and for sharing with us. Well, thank you for for all you're doing and reaching out. I I, I uh, I'm very impressed by it. It's important and and uh, it's it's so valuable. And thank you for taking the time and and for all your gracious words about the book. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion with Dr. Dyseroth as much as I did. Be sure to check out his new book, Projections: A Story of Human Emotions. It's available on Amazon, Audible, and all the other standard places where books are found. If you'd like to support this podcast, please subscribe to us on YouTube. As well, you can subscribe to us on Apple or Spotify. At Apple, you also have the opportunity to leave us a five-star review and to give us feedback. Please put any questions you have in the comments section below the YouTube video if you'd like us to address certain things in future episodes or if you have questions about this particular episode. In addition, please check out our sponsors. That's a terrific way to support us. And as mentioned at the beginning of today's episode, we are now partnered with Momentous Supplements because they make single ingredient formulations that are of the absolute highest quality and they ship international. If you go to livemomentous.com slash Huberman, you will find many of the supplements that have been discussed on various episodes of the Huberman Lab podcast, and you will find various protocols related to those supplements. Last but not least, if you're interested in understanding more about how the brain works and how it functions and how it breaks down in various conditions, check out the first episode of the Huberman Lab podcast. The title of that episode is How Your Nervous System Works and Changes. If you're watching this right now on YouTube, you can simply click on the title card for that episode. 
And last but not least, thank you for your interest in science. 